0: Please check the description for a link to paper copies of the books featured and upcoming as well as links to other products that will help support this podcast. Thanks for being awesome. Chapter 2 Primitive Monies Of all the historical forms of money I have come across, the one that most resembles the operation of Bitcoin is the ancient system based on rye stones on Yap Island, today a part of the Federated States of Micronesia. Understanding how the large circular stones carved from limestone functioned as money will help us explain Bitcoin's operation in Chapter 8. Understanding the remarkable tale of how the rye stones lost their monetary role is an object lesson in how money loses its monetary status once it loses its hardness. The rye stones that constituted money were of various sizes, rising to large circular disks with a hole in the middle that weighed up to four metric tons. They were not native to Yap, which did not contain any limestone, and all of Yap's stones were brought in from neighboring Palau or Guam. The beauty and rarity of these stones made them desirable and venerable in Yap, but procuring them was very difficult, as it involved a laborious process of quarrying and then shipping them with rafts and canoes. Some of these rocks required hundreds of people to transport them, and once they arrived on Yap, they were placed in a prominent location where everyone could see them. The owner of the stone could use it as a payment method without it having to move. All that would happen is that the owner would announce to all townsfolk that the stone's ownership has now moved to the recipient. The whole town would recognize the ownership of the stone, and the recipient could then use it to make a payment whenever he so pleased. There was effectively no way of stealing the stone, because its ownership was known by everybody. For centuries, and possibly even millennia, this monetary system worked well for the Yapis. While the stones never moved, they had salability across space, as one could use them for payment anywhere on the island. The different sizes of the different stones provided some degree of salability across scales, as did the possibility of paying with fractions of a single stone. The stone's salability across time was assured for centuries by the difficulty and high cost of acquiring new stones, because they didn't exist in Yap and quarrying and shipping them from Palau was not easy. The very high cost of procuring new stones to Yap meant that the existing supply of stones was always far larger than whatever new supply could be produced at a given period of time, making it prudent to accept them as a form of payment. In other words, rye stones had a very high stock-to-flow ratio, and no matter how desirable they were, It was not easy for anyone to inflate the supply of stones by bringing in new rocks. Or at least, that was the case, until 1871, when an Irish-American captain by the name of David O'Keefe was shipwrecked on the shores of Yap and revived by the locals. O'Keefe saw a profit opportunity in taking coconuts from the island and selling them to producers of coconut oil but he had no means to entice the locals to work for him because they were very content with their lives as they were in their tropical paradise and had no use for whatever foreign forms of money he could offer them. But O'Keefe wouldn't take no for an answer. He sailed to Hong Kong, procured a large boat and explosives, took them to Palau, where he used the explosives and modern tools to quarry several large rylestones and set sail to Yap to present the stones to the locals as payment for coconuts. Contrary to what O'Keefe expected, the villagers were not keen on receiving his stones, and the village chief banned his townsfolk from working for the stones, decreeing that O'Keefe's stones were not of value because they were gathered too easily. Only the stones quarried traditionally with the sweat and blood of the Yapese, were to be accepted in Yap. Others on the island disagreed, and they did supply O'Keefe with the coconuts he sought. This resulted in conflict on the island, and in time, the demise of rye stones as money. Today the stones serve a more ceremonial and cultural role on the island, and modern government money is the most commonly used monetary medium. While O'Keefe's story is highly symbolic, he was but the harbinger of the inevitable demise of ryestones monetary role with the encroaching of modern industrial civilization on yap and its inhabitants as modern tools and industrial capabilities reached the region it was inevitable that the production of the stones would become far less costly than before there would be many o'keefes local and foreign able to supply yap with an ever larger flow of new stones with modern technology, the stock-to-flow ratio for rye stones decreased drastically. It was possible to produce far more of these stones every year, significantly devaluing the island's existing stock. It became increasingly unwise for anyone to use these stones as a store of value, and thus they lost their salability across time, and with it, their function as a medium of exchange. The details may differ but the underlying dynamic of a drop in stock to flow ratio has been the same for every form of money that has lost its monetary role up to the collapse of the venezuelan bolivar taking place as these lines are being written a similar story happened with the agri beads used as money for centuries in western africa the history of these beads in western africa is not entirely clear with suggestions that they were made from meteorite stones or passed on from Egyptian and Phoenician traders. What is known is that they were precious in an area where glass-making technology was expensive and not very common, giving them a high stock-to-flow ratio, making them saleable across time. Being small and valuable, these beads were saleable across scale, because they could be combined into chains, necklaces, or bracelets, though this was far from ideal because there were many different kinds of beads rather than one standard unit. They were also saleable across space, as they were easy to move around. In contrast, glass beads were not expensive and had no monetary role in Europe, because the proliferation of glassmaking technology meant that if they were to be utilized as a monetary unit, their producers could flood the market with them. In other words, they had a low stock-to-flow ratio. When European explorers and traders visited West Africa in the 16th century, they noticed the high value given to these beads, and so started importing them in mass quantities from Europe. What followed was similar to the story of O'Keeffe, but given the tiny size of the beads and the much larger size of the population, it was a slower, slower, more covert process, with bigger and more tragic consequences. Slowly but surely, Europeans were able to purchase a lot of the precious resources of Africa for the beads they acquired back home for very little. European incursion into Africa slowly turned beads from hard money to easy money, destroying their saleability and causing the erosion of the purchasing power of these beads over time in the hands of the Africans who owned them impoverishing them by transferring their wealth to the Europeans, who could acquire the beads easily. The agri-beads later came to be known as slave beads for the role they played in fueling the slave trade of Africans to Europeans and North Americans. A one-time collapse in the value of a monetary medium is tragic, but at least it is over quickly, and its holders can begin trading, saving, and calculating with a new one but a slow drain of its monetary value over time will slowly transfer the wealth of its holders to those who can produce the medium at a low cost. This is a lesson worth remembering when we turn to the discussion of the soundness of government money in the later parts of the audiobook. Seashells are another monetary medium that was widely used in many places around the world, from North America to Africa and Asia. Historical accounts show that the most saleable seashells were usually the ones that were scarcer and harder to find, because these would hold value more than the ones that can be found easily. Native Americans and early European settlers used wampum shells extensively, for the same reasons as beads. They were hard to find, giving them a high stock-to-flow ratio, possibly the highest among durable goods available at the time. Seashells also shared with agri beads the disadvantage of not being uniform units, which meant prices and ratios could not be easily measured and expressed in them uniformly, which creates large obstacles to the growth of the economy and the degree of specialization. European settlers adopted seashells as legal tender from 1636, but as more and more British gold and silver coins started flowing to North America, these were preferred as a medium of exchange due to their uniformity, allowing for better and more uniform price denomination and giving them higher salability. Further, as more advanced boats and technologies were employed to harvest seashells from the sea, their supply was very highly inflated, leading to a drop in their value and the loss of salability across time. By 1661, seashells stopped being legal tender and eventually lost all monetary role. This was not just the fate of seashell money in North America. Whenever societies employing seashells had access to uniform metal coins, they adopted them and benefited from the switch. Also, the arrival of industrial civilization, with fossil fuel-powered boats, made scouring the sea for seashells easier, increasing the flow of their production and dropping the stock-to-flow ratio quickly. Other ancient forms of money include cattle, cherished for their nutritional value, as they were one of the most prized possessions anyone could own, and were also saleable across space due to their mobility. Cattle continue to play a monetary role today, with many societies using them for payments, especially for dowries. Being bulky and not easily divisible, however, meant cattle were not very useful to solve the problems of divisibility across scales. And so another form of money coexisted along with cattle, and that was salt. Salt was easy to keep for long durations, and could be easily divided and grouped into whatever weight was necessary. These historical facts are still apparent in the English language, as the word pecuniary is derived from pecus, the Latin word for cattle. While the word salary is derived from sal, the Latin word for salt. As technology advanced, particularly with metallurgy, humans developed superior forms of money to these artifacts, which began to quickly replace them. These metals proved a better medium of exchange than seashells, stones, beads, cattle, and salt because they could be made into uniform, highly valuable small units that could be moved around far more easily. Another nail in the coffin of artifact money came with the mass utilization of hydrocarbon fuel energy, which increased our productive capacity significantly, allowing for a quick increase in the new supply, flow, of these artifacts, meaning that the forms of money that relied on difficulty of production to protect their high stock-to-flow ratio lost it. With modern hydrocarbon fuels, Rye stones could be quarried easily, agri-beads could be made for very little cost, and seashells could be collected en masse by large boats. As soon as these monies lost their hardness, their holders suffered significant wealth expropriation, and the entire fabric of their society fell apart as a result. The Op Island chiefs who refused O'Keeffe's cheap rye stones understood what most modern economists fail to grasp. A money that is easy to produce is no money at all, and easy money does not make a society richer. On the contrary, it makes it poorer by placing all its hard-earned wealth for sale in exchange for something easy to produce.